All right, I can get going if you want. Yeah, go for it. All right. Uh, but no one ever doubts that God gives fair play. That may be, but it does not go for much if you say that God does this or that which is not fair. If he does it, you, be, you may be sure that it is fair. Doubtless, or he could not be God except to devils. But you say he does so-and-so and is just. I say he does not do so-and-so and is just. You say he does, for the Bible says so. I say if the Bible says so, then the Bible would lie, but the Bible does not say so. The Lord of life complains of men for not judging right. To say on the authority of the Bible that God does a thing no honorable man would do is to lie against God. To say that it is therefore right is to lie against the very spirit of God. To uphold a lie for God's sake is to be against God, not for him. God cannot be lied for. He is the truth. The truth alone is on his side. While his child could not see the rectitude of a thing, he would infinitely rather, even if the thing were right, have him say God could not do that thing than have him believe that he did it. If the man were sure God did it, the thing he ought to say would be, then there must be something about it I do not know, which if I did know, I should see the thing quite differently. But where an evil thing is invented to explain and account for a good thing, and a lover of God is called upon to believe the invention to be cast out. He needs not mind being cast out, for it is to the, into the company of Jesus. Yeah. Or there is no ground to believe that God does a thing except that men would, who would explain God have believed and taught it. He is not a true man who, ex, who accepts men against his own conscience of God. I acknowledge no authority calling upon me to believe a thing of God, which I could, which I could not be a man and believe right in my, in my fellow man. I will accept no explanation of any way of God, which, explain, which explanation involves what I would scorn, what I should scorn as false and unfair in a man. If you say that may be right of God to do, which it would not be right of man to do, I answer yes, because the relation of the maker to his creatures is very different from the relation of one who's of those creatures to another, and he has therefore duties towards his creatures requiring of him what no man would have the right to do to his fellow man. But he can have no duty that is not both just and merciful. More is required of the maker by his own act of creation than can be required of men. Of men. One second. <laughs> Robert's now going to act as magistrate and father. <laughs> or like soother administrator. <laughs> More is required of the maker by his own act of creation than can be required of men. More and higher justice and righteousness is, is required of him by himself, the truth. Greater nobleness, more penetrating sympathy, and nothing but what, if an honest man understood it, he would say was right. If it be a thing man cannot understand, then, men, then man cannot say, then man can say nothing as to whether it is right or wrong. He cannot even know that God does it when the it is unintelligible to him. What he calls it may be the smallest facet of a, of a composite action. His part is silence. If it, if it be said by any that God does a thing and the thing seems to me unjust, then either I do not know what the thing is or God does not do it. 
The saying cannot mean what, it's, what it seems to mean, or the saying is not true. If, for instance, it be said that God visits the, sin, the sins of the fathers on the children, a man who takes visits upon to mean punishes, and the children to mean the innocent children. Um, ought to say, either I do not understand the statement, or the thing is not true, whoever says it. God may do what seems to, to a man not right, but it must so seem to him, because God works on a higher, on divine, on perfect principles, too right for a selfish, unfair, and unloving man to understand. But least of all, must we accept some low notion of justice in a man, and argue that God is just in doing it. Do you want to stop there? And there's a lot of, there's a ton of stuff in there. <laughs> okay, any thoughts, anybody? Anything stand out? Seems to me to be ordered through a number of themes, but like one in general may be the creator-creature distinction and how that implies a kind of ethic beside the pointness. Our ethics aren't God's ethics. His ways aren't mm -hmm. our ways. And that can be either hopeful news or hopeless news. That was like a knee-jerk reaction to that reading. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think for George MacDonald, it's more hopeful. Um, to the people he's, he's writing this to, it's probably hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say he's on the side of hope. I think there's a bit of a tension there because on the one hand, he's saying that if um, something, if someone says that God says that something is just or does something that's, that is just, which seems to him unjust, then either the person is misreading it. Yeah. So he's saying the person's misreading what, what is happening or that's not actually God who's saying it or something to that effect. And it, there's a tension between that and um, where he also says that he, like, like you were mentioning, there's a creator creation distinction there where there's plenty of things that we don't understand. So if there's something that seems unjust, it could just be that we're, we're too creaturely to understand um, something that is good from the position of, from the perspective of the creator. Yeah, I I think the tension that you're, I, I mean, the tension that you're uh, experiencing there is is perhaps because it really needs to be unraveled, like exactly what he's talking about. I think it's less, it's more clear than we th than than like what he's saying, because he's taking you know just and unjust, you know, opposites and, and laying them out side by side over and over again. And, um, but he's really saying only one thing. And um, I think that he establishes that in the very beginning when he says, you say he does so-and-so and is just. I say he does not do so-and-so and is just. You say he does for the Bible says so. I say, if the Bible said so, 
the Bible would lie, but the Bible does not say so. That's the premise of the whole rest of the thing that he writes about. So I guess he's he's laying out an argument for the Bible not saying what they think. I mean, he hasn't gotten there yet in what we read, but that's what that's the plan. That's what it seems like to me. Yeah, I think that's right. So he's putting in doubt or into doubt the certainty perhaps his yeah. audience had with respect to how they treated one object of their ritual life, namely the Bible. This thing, I know how it works. Give me the vespers, give me the candles, light them, I'll say what's right, I'll read this chapter correctly and interpret the Christian way. Right. Yeah, oh. and he's he's not, like in this sermon, he's actually not going against or going after the Bible in 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 that sense he's going after the the idea of um robert do you have do you do you have quick access to the verse at the very beginning of the sermon just for matt yeah like the actual quotation or the words from... yeah the 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 quotation the verse that he uses to to base the sermon on yeah, it's also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man. Works. Mm -hmm. So he's 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 holding up mercy and justice, and he's saying that they are the same thing because God is one. That's what that's what we've kind of read so far. That you know. Um, we we like to think of of justice as punishing sin and mercy as not punishing sin. But he makes the distinction that if you do that, you're you're giving God two offices and you're splitting his personality. You're making him a judge and a father, and the two can't do the same job. So that's kind of the argument up to this point. And now he's going into the text. Now he's saying you're, you know. You're, you're not reading it. You're not reading what it says, basically. Um, just thought it was interesting that uh, there's a, the C.S. Lewis connection. I want to comment on that. Yeah. I was reading. Um, my my wife and I are reading. Um, the line the witch in the wardrobe. We just finished that one. And um, actually, we were, we were going to read it to our kids. And then my wife's like, why don't we just read it now? So we decided to do that. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. But um, I mentioned that because C.S. Lewis, you know, really loved McDonald. And he says that it's not his fantasy that he really liked. It's actually his um, sermons and his uh, theological work. Yeah. So the interesting thing to me is that his... Christology, basically, in 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 uh, the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe," involves that that um, traditional vision of atonement, because Aslan is required by the deep magic to 
if he wants to save Edmund to sacrifice himself. And the deeper magic is what actually ends up setting him free or setting him free from death because he's a willing, a willing sacrifice. So it's a, it's interesting that C.S. Lewis was such a big fan of MacDonald, but he didn't, he didn't, um, although I'm not really sure how it could look any different. That's the thing. I guess I'm thinking out loud now. I don't think George MacDonald doesn't think that, what you just described. And yeah, he gets into it. He gets I... into it and, and yeah, he thinks that too, you know, that doesn't, um, it's yeah, just, and I was thinking of the separation of the offices there. Um, yeah, so I guess we shouldn't, according to McDonald, we shouldn't separate the offices because then you separate God. But, yeah. um, so what are we saying then? Are we saying that there's something deeper, something, a, a more morality that's, that's, a, that's over God yet? Is that what we're saying? That requires him to make that sacrifice for 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 sins, the sins of the world. I think I'm just going to jump in, but anybody else, please add their two cents. But I think that what because if I read in the last bit there that you um, that you read. If it be a thing man cannot understand, then man can say nothing as to whether it is right or wrong. He cannot even know that God does it when the it is unintelligible to him. He may, uh, what he calls it may be but the smallest facet of a composite action. Um, there's actually something else that I was looking for here. That's actually really helpful. I, it, basically, I'm reading it, but I'm, I'm forgetting it as I go because it's so much packed into the one paragraph. So That's why we have to unravel it, right? So what he's saying is it's the idea that God, we have the idea that, or the people he's writing to have the idea that God is holding two separate offices. And he's saying you need to look at this differently. Because if you can't understand it, then then just say, and that's what I'm looking for. He has a thing, he has a sentence in here. Oh, there it is. If it be said by any that God does a thing and the thing seems to me unjust, then either I do not know what the thing is, or God does not do it. Um, no, that's not it either. <laughs> Where is that? Anyway, he says in here somewhere, just say I don't know. I think it's when he talks about lying. That's where it is. Got lying. Yeah, I remember reading that as well. Yeah, and that's, I think that's, that's really what important. He... But it doesn't really answer the question about there it the is. morality that's that's binding God. Well, if but the maybe, man maybe was that's sure... an unanswerable question. It's possible. Yeah, if the man were sure God did it, the thing he ought to say would be, then there must be something about it. I do not know, which if I did know, I would see the thing quite differently. Right? Yes. So I think this is what he's he's trying to push people to the edge of their finite capabilities of wrapping their heads around it. You know, he's saying just 
you know, instead of instead of writing up some kind of theology that justifies what you think God is doing, just say you don't know. I also think alongside that, it's an interesting uh, point he makes how we can use the Bible to our disadvantage mm -hmm. in, in or in advancement towards God and godliness, however we want to put it. Certain people call it sanctification, other people call it other. Like we read the narrative, say, of, of John or Paul's letter to the Romans, and we read God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we, it's almost as if, because we have it here before us, and we're reading it in our life, we assume that since we can read the words, we know what's being written, <laughs> and we know yeah. what's being said. And it's just like, pound the book long enough, and the person will get the point. Uh, pound it even longer than that, and we'll finally get the point. Um, but... Just because we have access to evidence doesn't mean we have the right theory by which to interpret the evidence and use it yeah. to make a case. We might just be making our wishes. And I suppose to whether or not there's a standard above God, that's why I personally would say that there, there cannot be because we can't even get a handle on God's standard yeah. since it's like, like even if it was encoded in the prophets or in, in Paul, how would we know? <laughs> what would we compare it? Yeah, and, and the assumption that because we don't understand it, then God must have a, a morality above him is, is, is typically human. It's a, it's a human assumption to make. You know, if, if I don't get it, then, then there must be a whole different system in, in place here. But I guess I mean, we could also, sorry, just to jump in, we could also say that, um, Instead of saying this is the standard above God, we could say that God is bound by his own character. Right. That, that, that is the standard, I think, right? That's, so he's that's... bound by his own character to, to um, be just towards um, sinful people, which is a, you know, a difficulty. And it's both just to um, punish those who are erring and to um, ultimately send his son as a sacrifice for those who are erring. That's all part of the same, the same justice. Maybe that's what's kind of being communicated here. Uh, the thing, you know, it, it says, you know, God loved the world that he, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? But did he send him? Like that, those are two different words. And as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, I think Jesus voluntarily stepped forward and said, I'll do that. So he gave us him, right? So there's nothing unjust about that because God always, he, he always, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Respects the, the free will. That's, you know, or the agency or however you want to describe it that is involved. Agency is, is probably better. Yeah. I, I just don't like the, the term free will, that's all. 
Yeah, that's okay. You can call it whatever you like. <laughs> so, to kind of summarize. So if we were to kind of summarize what you guys were talking about, it would be that in some ways God himself is his own standard, if that makes sense. And so he's not able to violate his own character because, because then he wouldn't be God, he would be something else. And that, that's, of course, that's the complaint that is going to come up next because um, people will insist that God will punish sinners even eternally because he can't violate his own character. He can't forgive without contrition or something like something to that effect. But I think I think that's kind of where the mercy comes in. It would be that being merciful is also um, bound up in the justice itself. Right. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, that's a that's a that that's really key. It's one thing, right? Like God is one, mercy and justice are one. Um, it's all bound up together. The, I think there is, it's important to note, though, that there are images in the Bible um, of um, Jesus as a mediator between um, man and God, right? He is the, the um, high priest. So... There is a, as much as McDonald will say, if you if you separate God's offices, you separate him. There is a separation of office there because God the Father is not a high priest, but God the Son, after after his death and resurrection, is the high priest. So, yeah, but he's still one, right? That's the whole, that's the big conundrum of the absolutely. Trinity. He's, he is definitely still one, but. But there is a difference in office. Yeah, yes, I guess so. But I, I mean, I'd have to say what, what George MacDonald says. Maybe there's something that I don't. I mean, there's obviously oh, something there that, it's, you know, I just don't get. <laughs> it's obviously really difficult to understand because even even the, um, I don't really find the math difficult exactly with the, the, the Trinity. It's more, how can something with one um one being be essence three. be, be yeah. th- three persons three persons right mm-hmm. which is the the, the, it, the it's not really an insurmountable problem though as long as you admit your own inadequacy because you know even scientists bump into this this kind of thing all the time you have particles or you have light that is both particle and wave depending on the situation which is bizarre really and they don't really have, I mean, they've, they've sort of conceded to that problem just being a problem and just staying one. So, so I mean, the same can, thing can be done for other similar things, such as the Trinity, which, is, of course, is a different problem. But 
um, a similar logical difficulty, I guess. Right. And that's, that's why George MacDonald says, if it be said by any, that God does a thing and the thing seems, he says unjust, but let's say um, unexplainable or un ununderstandable, then either I do not know what the thing is, you know, or God does not do it. So he, he's giving people the freedom to just say, to throw their hands up in the air. And like the scientists say, let's just agree that this is not something we get. You know, it's, it's just not something we understand. But is he himself doing that? Because I don't feel that he is. Well, not in the end. But yeah. but I think that's what he's, he's, in this little portion that we've read, he's trying to get people there, right? He's trying to get them. It's like they're, it's like they, they, they have a, they've made up their minds about something. And, and if he doesn't start the discussion delicately, they, they're just going to walk away before he gets to, so he's just trying to get people there. Let's just say, you know, let's just look at how difficult this is to understand. And let's just keep an open mind. Yeah, but do you think he, <laughs> at the end of his argument, might say, hmm, maybe I'm wrong. I don't feel... No, I he don't doesn't. Feel, yeah, I don't feel he, he's willing to go that far. No. Yeah. No, he yeah. does not. That's that's very true, Chuck. And, and I, th I think it's interesting that... I mean, it, I don't want to psychologize too much, but it does take a a strong character to um, write things that get you kicked out of your own congregation and then head off to teach at university. Like, like that's a real break from, um, you know, his, his contemporaries, I guess, his contemporary preachers and whatnot. Yeah, but he's, he's going to, it's like, okay, anybody who, who forms an argument, let's, let's take Plato or Socrates, you know, for that matter. Anyone who f forms, forms a really good argument, perfect in their mind, is not going to say that they're wrong. Like, you know, it's, I think it's on us to decide whether or not we think George MacDonald is right or wrong. It doesn't really matter what he thinks. He's just built an argument for us to look at. But I think I think the danger lies in not treating your opponents with total honesty um, if everything depends on proving your point. Well, you know what I mean? Like I know what you mean, but I don't I, I don't want to say he's straw manning the other the other side, but I kind of feel like he's straw manning the other side. Yeah, but maybe that's what the argument needed, you know, because the other side was the the standard um, viewpoint. Like he he's like the only guy swimming against the current, right? So he's drawing drawing all attention to what what people believe um but, but more than that he's presenting his his point of view which so i i can give him that i think 
Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Does anybody want to say anything else about this piece, or should we move on? I think somewhere in the sermon, um, he even mentions that he's not really trying to convince other people that he's right, but yeah, it's more so that he's just kind of offering what he thinks is true. He does. And I see in this And it's a rhetorical attempt, but I think it's coming out of a sincerity. Put God on a very, 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 very high pedestal without losing his salience. I think that's his, I feel like that's his project. Mm -hmm. To make God seem so high and mighty while making him. And that's an interesting line. Yeah. So he he lays emphasis on the fact that he's a creator and so he's part uh, in every way that matters. And he has this assurance that seems to belie a personal experience that he just can't find the right words for. And so I see that as a dynamic really giving his prose. Mm-hmm. No wonder. I mean, to my mind, it's full seeds of what to him could be called enthusiasms. Right. But for, for a writer like C.S. Lewis, and in his hands, the seeds of enchantment and fairy tale and mm-hmm. other world uh, story verse where allegories can make sense of perplexing paradoxes that are kind of dry in a theological uh, seminary or a church where the liturgy is in another language and stuff like that. It's like, um, it's like, it's almost like it's functioning like an icon, right, Matt? Like it's the argument. It's, it's, it's drawing you not to look at this ossified idea, this, you know, hard problem let's say of justice and mercy but to look through it it's like c.s lewis's further up and further in idea i would agree with that completely i I do think he does that like this this is not just a a dissertation this is a sermon but it's a mcdonald's sermon which means he was self-consciously i would say self-consciously performing this and it was artistically rendered i mean he's he's what's the word i want he is enacting the problem before our very eyes in the structure of the paragraph mm-hmm. like i would agree with you wholeheartedly it, it, it functions like an icon in that sense S- similar to that i would also say that he's addressing things that are not exactly completely false but they're truths that have been sort of um how do I say this truths that have been have been concealed by by assumptions about what what the truths actually mean and he's he's trying to get at the truth 
underneath all those assumptions. I don't know if that yeah. helps. No, that's like, that's that's good. Like the the deeper truth, the truth that is below all the talk, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Should we read on? Let's do it. All right. I guess I can just keep going if no one has any objections. Yeah. No. Okay. Chuck, did you want to say anything more? Or Nolan? Nope. Okay. Uh, let's see. The common idea, then, is that justice of God consists in punishing sin. It is in the hope of giving a larger idea of the justice of God in punishing sin that I ask, why is God bound to punish sin? How could he be a just God and not punish sin? Mercy is a good and right thing, I answer, and but for sin, there could be no mercy. We are enjoined to forgive, to be merciful, to be as our Father in heaven. Two rights cannot possibly be opposed to each other. If God punished sin, it must be merciful to punish sin. And if God forgives sin, it must be just to forgive sin. We are required to forgive with the argument that our Father forgives. It must, I say, be right to forgive. Every attribute of God must be infinite as himself. He cannot be sometimes merciful and not always merciful. He cannot be just and not always just. Mercy belongs to him and needs no contrivance or, th or theologic chickenry to justify it. Then you mean that it is wrong to punish sin, therefore God does not punish sin? By no means. God does punish sin, but there is no opposition between punishment and forgiveness. The one may be essential to the possibility of the other. Why, I repeat, does God punish sin? That is my point. Because in itself, sin deserves punishment. Then how can he tell us to forgive it? He punishes, and having punished, he forgives? That will hardly do. If sin, punish, if sin demands punishment, and the righteous punishment is given, then the man is free. Why should he be forgiven? He needs forgiveness because no amount of, of punishment will meet his deserts. I avoid for the present, as anyone may perceive, the probable expansion of this, of this reply. Then why not forgive him at once if the punishment is not essential, if part can be pre-termitted? Pre and again, can that be required, which, according to your showing, is not adequate? You will perhaps answer, God may please to take what little he can have. And this brings me to the fault in the whole idea. Punishment is no wise an offset to sin. Foolish people sometimes, in a tone of self-gradulatory pity, will say, If I have sinned, I have suffered. Yes, verily, but what of that? What merit is there in it? Even had you laid the suffering upon yourself, what did that do to make up for the wrong? That you may have bettered by your suffering is well for you, but what atonement is there in the suffering? The notion is a false one altogether. Punishment deserves suffering is no equipoise to sin. It is, it is no use laying it on the other scale. It will not move at a hair's breadth. Suffering weighs nothing at all against sin. It is not, the, not of the same kind, not under the same laws, any more than mind and matter. We say a man deserves punishment, but when we forgive and do not punish him, we do not always feel that we have done wrong. Neither when we punish him do we feel that any amends has been made for his wrongdoing. If it were an offset 
to wrong, then God would be bound to punish for the sake of the punishment, but he cannot be, for he forgives. Then it is not for the sake of the punishment, as a thing that is in, in itself ought to be done, but for the sake of something else, as a means to an end, that God punishes. It is not directly for justice, else how, how could he show mercy? For that would involve injustice. Primarily, God is not bound to punish sin. He is bound to destroy sin. If he were not the maker, he might not be bound to destroy sin. I do not know. But seeing he has created creatures who have sinned, and therefore sin has, by the creating act of God, come into the world, God is, in his own righteousness, bound to destroy sin. Do you want to wait there? Sure. It's jammed. I thought yeah. of as a metaphor to that. He takes sin, and I love how he brings it in stark relief to a kind of psychologized, emotional landscape in our breast, like behind our chest. Uh, he puts it out there where we can see it. So, for example, the part of Notre Dame that burned, no amount of buckets of people's tears will reconstruct the paintings that were in the architecture that survived hundreds, you know, a thousand years. No amount of tears will bring that back, though the tears will be shed. Why? Because the sin was objective burning and the crashing. Um, emotional releases will happen, but they don't recapitulate what was lost. And I, I think that's so powerful and moving. And no wonder then he goes into the stage where God, as a creator, has some sense of, it's too strong a word, it's not even the right word, but obligation to recapitulate what was ruined. Very powerful paragraph. Yeah. I mean, this is basically a similar a similar journey as the watch story that he takes us on, right? That you know, no matter no matter what you do, you can't restore the fact that somebody stole your watch, even if the watch has been restored. The wrong has been done, and um, and punishment doesn't do it doesn't like like Matt was describing, you know, it doesn't rebuild the thing. It doesn't take us back in time to the moment that before it happened, you know. It just gives us some kind of an emotional satisfaction. And I think the key idea is that is that um, that next paragraph where he says primarily god is not bound to punish sin he is bound to destroy sin that's that's the, the distinction that he's trying to help us understand i would agree and thank god for that because it's by no means necessary like there's this i was thinking earlier when we read our first section to put it in like modal logic terms we tend to think that we know what necessity is but how could we if we buy into the christian story 
we're created creatures. Like there's no part of us that's necessary. <laughs> if that's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like someone sitting down and painting. There's no part of their movement of the brush that is necessary. It's leisurely. It's fun and it's free associative and there's probably design behind it if it's a skilled painter. But there's like we're kidding ourselves if we say there's necessity driving it. Yeah. We're not bridges, you know, we're not planes. Um so th the necessity's somewhere in God, but it's not like we would know it if we saw it. And so when you say he's going to destroy sin, it's like, thank God. <laughs> because it, there doesn't seem to be um, a push to play where it immediately pops on the screen and says, this is your mission, God, destroy sin. I think the, I think the only necessity in God is love. He has a necessity to express love. And that's why he created us. Yeah, I would also say, um, oh, I'm losing it. Um, oh, like it, it's important what kind of creatures we are, right? I would say that um, the kind of agency that we have as compared to other created things like a tree, for example. Um It, this, like I, I thought previously um, that, you know, maybe thinking, thinking about, about my life, maybe all of this, or, and then not just my life, but, but human history in general, maybe all of this is one long and giant story that is, is a necessary story if we are to be, as human beings, capable of communing with God. Mm. So that like you have to step like you know a hundred paces back to see to see the story, but the whole thing, you know, like like we're saying here, might make sense from from a certain perspective. And if it doesn't make sense, it's because you're not far enough back. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Another thing, um, I th I, I, something that really struck me was the the argument about him being a maker. He says, if he were not a maker, he might not be bound to destroy sin. I do not know. But seeing that he has created creatures who have sinned, and therefore sin has by the creating act of God come into the world, God is in his own righteousness bound to destroy sin. Yeah, that's powerful, eh? Yeah, so that's why that ties into what I just said about the, the big story. Um, it's it's you know if if God is really omniscient, um, He would know that this kind of this kind of big story was a, nece a necessity for the kind of limited creatures that He was creating, right? So He would know He would know that He He would have to both create something that would sin, that would make mistakes. And then he would have to take time and a heck of a lot of love um, to, in the end, bring that bring that being into into communion with him. Mm. What do you think he means by 
destroy sin. What is this concept of sin that it is a thing that can be destroyed? I think that it's the idea that sin entered Adam. It's like sin is a it's a it a disease, you know, if you will, that entered the human race, you know, his creation. And um it's I I don't see it I don't see him describing it here as a as an act, you know, like I um I stole bubble gum when I was six and that you know that that was my biggest sin. You know, it's not it he's he's not narrowing it down to this or that. It's it's the whole idea of sin entering and and then of course Jesus um destroyed sin, you know, we he was the last Adam, right? Yeah, you could you could even say that sin is a position or, or a um, stance or an attitude um, that we take towards God, uh, more specifically away from God, right? We turn our backs, and when you atone or when you, it's the same thing as making up with with you know another 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 human being, a family member, whatever you. When we do something wrong. We try and make, make it up to them. And the same thing has to be done to God. You turn back towards the person or to God. And that is a way of not, not erasing the sin entirely as if it hadn't happened, but correcting after being in the wrong, correcting your, your stance after, um, having, after having taken the wrong position or however you want to think about it. You know, the, um, I had a, I had a, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but I was thinking about this when you were talking about the created creatures who have sinned and they're, you know, you were saying maybe this is the process that, that we have to go through, right? I was thinking about when you make a blade, like a sword or anything, that you have, you know, you can, you can fashion the sword, you can make the sword, but you can't use the sword until you heat it up. And then cool, cool it down quickly and harden the steel, right? So you have this thing that you've made, but it's not, it's not, you can't take it out into the world and use it until it's been hardened and made perfect. And then it's useful. Uh, it might lack in many, <laughs> in many ways, but that's just the idea that i had like if you think about if you think about the idea that we have to go through this process maybe that is the process right that that makes us perfect whole yeah i would definitely agree that's similar to the um one of the psalmist images that he uses where he says that um suffering is a refiner's fire either suffering is or god is i'm not quite sure but the, the effect is the same, right? It's yeah. the it's the heat, right? The heat of suffering that makes you either pure or stronger in your analogy. Yeah.
there's there's one small irony that I would, that I want to point out. Um, let's see if we can find it back. Yeah, it wouldn't appear ironic to him at the time when he wrote it, but to me, it read as a little ironic. I'll just read it. Suffering yeah. weighs nothing at all against sin. It is not of the same kind, not under the same laws, any more than mind and matter. And then, yeah. you know, recently we've heard a lot about from from the materialists how mind mind and matter are basically, you know, equated in some way because you can't have, for a materialist, you can't have that. Yeah. Like Daniel Dennett, for example, in his book. Uh, what's it called again? Consciousness, consciousness explained. It, it doesn't explain consciousness, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine it could. It explains it away. So <laughs> yeah, I guess that maybe that's the same thing to him. It's, it's not the greatest. There's a couple sentences in here. Just curious what you guys think. Um, the first one is that will hardly do. If sin demands punishment and the righteous punishment is given, then the man is free. Why should he be forgiven? And then the second one is if it were an offset to wrong, then God would be bound to punish for the sake of the punishment, but he cannot be, for he forgives. Hmm. There's something deep about what occurs. like It's like an event. When someone is forgiven and they know it, and when simultaneously the other forgives and they know it and then like a third term who knows how it happens interpsychically but they both know what they've done to and for each other and they know that they know that it's very subtle yeah <clears throat> i'm not sure you could probably put a hundred lawyers in a vast forum and not one of them would know how to begin litigating that dialectic, that process, that back and forth that happens in the wink of an eye or a simple smile and a head nod and a three words, I forgive you. There's something like that's the poetic version, but there's got to there. There's something so unabashed about that. I remember C.S. Lewis at one point, maybe in the problem of pain, he talks about the various forms of love and how they exist uh, at the same time, but on different levels. Like there's a love of a man and a dog. There's a love of a man and his friend. There's a love of a man and his wife. There's a love of man up to God. And then the family's in there too. And like all these things can happen in the same human heart. And we somehow know how to discriminate and know the difference, but sometimes we mix them, which is okay. Maybe they build upon one another. God, certainly when looking down to us against these various offices, sees us perhaps that way. Like we are the work of his hands and yet we're his lover. Like if you, if you buy into the metaphor the book of Ephesians uses the church is the wife, the bride mm -hmm. of Christ. Um, and then we're called the friends of God in, in John's gospel. It, like all these things seem to pertain. 
but why would this be so for someone who just made us, right? Like if we're his project, I, I, in human terms, I dare you to find an artist who really loves his or her work, like to the point where they would make a single sacrifice for it, like a real sacrifice, like a pedantic one, like a, <laughs> like a one that can't be romanticized away. Um, and I think somewhere in that, and I'd love your opinion on this, anyone's opinion on this, I think that's where the forgiveness element comes in. It's like almost pedantic. You can forgive someone, you can, you can remove the charges, but then to step up and forgive them, it's, it's so unnecessary and messy. And yet when it's done, mm, the world changes. I don't know. I, that sounds like a cliche. I don't have a precise terminology for it. What do you think? There's, there's something extremely powerful about, about that when it happens. Um, Sherry, do you remember, do you, uh, do you hear, read about that, that police officer in, in the Toronto area, I think, that um, shot and killed a man because she entered the wrong... Yeah. That was in the States, wasn't it? Is... No, I was here, I'm pretty sure. Oh, it was in the States, apparently. My wife just... <laughs> um, he, his brother, did you watch that? His brother I, in the I courtroom? Did. Yes. Publicly forgave. Yeah, and the judge too. That was, that was quite something. Like, that's completely unnecessary. Yeah. Right? She was going to do her time. It would all just, you know, from in the eyes of the law, it would all have been taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know, the slate would have been clean in a sense. But of course, it isn't really. And, but that, that kind of thing, like I was like I was saying about the stance, her stance now, if if she continues in the way that um, this this brother wants her to, to to uh, give her life to Jesus is the I think that's a phrase he used. That's a completely different way of like that's that's a completely different way of approaching life that she was that she had before, right? She she entered the wrong apartment because she was having an affair with her. She was married, but she was having an affair with her, or he was married her partner was married and she was having an affair with her partner. They were meeting secretly in this apartment or something like that. But anyways, the point is um, after that forgiveness, something really does change, obviously. So. Right. And like that sentence I read, if sin demands punishment and the righteous punishment is given, then the man is free, right? Like they, they're going to serve their time. They're done. They did their thing. The judgment was given. The punishment was given. And after that, they're free. Why should he be forgiven? Which is what God does. Because he says, if it were an offset to wrong, then God would be bound to punish for the sake of the punishment but he cannot be for he forgives. So maybe I, Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Matt. Maybe there, and I don't want to get too esoteric about this, but it is God and we're not God. So I'll, I'll venture a, an esotericism. If he made us, then every inch of us is contingent. And yet every inch of us has his fingerprint. And if we have this thing, which, defies all conception for, on any artist in the world. If he gave us this thing, and I'm going to use the 
phrase because I like free will. An artist giving us free will, still having his fingerprint all over it, completely having control over this thing called free will because it has its origin in him. If we use that against ourselves, against the world, against his genius, God's genius, yes, he can undo that. He can flood the world. He can restart again. He can even come down and do it himself. Gosh darn it. Uh, rolling up his sleeves. But there's a sense in which the offense remains that we, we, were, we, we, we chose ourselves not to be worthy of the gift of our representation. Like he made us and we thought we weren't worthy of being made. And it's, that, that's such an <coughs> offense. An offense. Like I, I, I don't even know how to sound the depths of the offense that must give like ontological. So like if he didn't forgive, I think even if all was cleaned from the slate, we would bear in our consciousness the guilt that we had not used our lives correctly. And when, so when he forgives, I think it's a deep, the deepest grace that he allows that guilt to go away. Well, I mean, further down, he says, primarily God is not bound to punish sin but to destroy it, right? So he yeah. make the, that that's the beginning of him getting underneath. Um, he's making that distinction. Um, and I, it, it's almost like you would, you would talk to a small child and you would say, do you know what punishment means? Punishment means, and then say, do you know what destroy means? Destroy means, right? So he's, he's, he's helping us to understand it. That thing that he says earlier, if the it is unintelligible, where is that? When the it is unintelligible to him, he cannot even know that God does it. But what, what he calls it may be but the smallest facet of a compos composite action. So the, now he's getting into the details. And like Peterson says, the, the devil is in the details, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, it's an interesting and... move that he makes rhetorically because as you pointed out, at the prior paragraphs, he sounded kind of chastising to the audience. And now there's a, since he's put them in their place, he can now readdress them in a gracious way and perspective has shifted to the, the child's perspective. So to your point, after humbling the audience a little bit, he can now reintroduce some really humble words that everyone thinks they understand, like destroy. But because mm -hmm. the audience has been so humbled, he can say it in a very gracious way. Now, don't you know what destroy means? And the yeah. person's just kind of like nodding their head and they're like, that's exactly what God did. And then you get a sense of, of awe again, like you would when you were eight years old. Right. Okay. He's poking them in their axiom. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Should we go on to the next one? I don't even know what time it is. You guys have time still? I have to dip out. Uh, it's been a pleasure all. Thank you. Yes, yeah, thanks for joining us. You keep going. Okay.
Alright. So God's bound to punish or to destroy sin. That is to have no mercy. You mistake. God does destroy sin. He is always destroying sin. In him I trust that he is destroying sin in me. He is always saving the sinner from his sins, and that is destroying sin. A vengeance on the sinner, the law of a tooth for a tooth, is not in the heart of God, neither in his hand. If the sinner and the sin in him are the concrete object of the divine wrath, then indeed there can be no mercy. Then indeed there will be there will be an end put to sin by the destruction of the sin and the sinner together. But this would no atonement but thus would no atonement be wrought. Nothing be done to make up for the wrong God has allowed to come into being by creating man. There must be an atonement, a making up, a bringing together. An atonement which, I say, cannot be made except by the man who has sinned. Punishment, I repeat, is not the thing required of God, but the absolute destruction of sin. What better is the world? What better is the sinner? What better is God? What better is the truth that the sinner should suffer, continue suffering to all eternity? Would there be less sin in the universe? Would there be any making up for sin? Would it show God justified in doing what he knew would bring sin into the world? Justified in making creatures who knew who he knew would sin? What setting right would come of the sinner's suffering? If justice demanded, if suffering be the equivalent for sin, then the sinner must suffer, then God is bound to exact his suffering and not pardon. And so the making of man of, a, of man was a tyrannical deed, a creative cruelty. But grant that the sinner has deserved to suffer. No amount of suffering is any atonement for his sin. To suffer to all eternity could not to suffer to all eternity could not make up for one unjust word. Does that mean then that for the unjust word I deserve to suffer to all eternity? The unjust word is an eternally evil thing. Nothing but God in my heart can cleanse me from the evil that uttered it. But does it follow that I saw the evil of what I did so perfectly that eternal punishment for it would be just? Sorrow and confession and self-abasing love will make up for the evil word. Suffering will not. For evil in the abstract, nothing can be done. It is eternally evil. But I may be saved from it by learning to loathe it, to hate it, to shrink from it without an, without an eternal avoidance. The only vengeance worth having on sin is to make the sinner himself its executioner. Sin and punishment are in no antagonism to each other in man, any more than pardon and punishment are in God. They can perfectly, perfectly coexist. The one naturally follows the other, punishment being born of sin, because evil exists only by the life of good and has no life of its own, being in itself death. Sin and suffering are not natural opposites. The opposite of evil is good, not suffering. The opposite of sin is not suffering, but righteousness. The path across the gulf that divides right from wrong is not the fire, but repentance. If my friend has wronged me, will it console me to see him punished? Will that be a rendering to me of my due? Will his agony be a balm to my deep wound? Should I be fit for any friendship if that were possible, even in regard to my enemy? But would not the shadow of repentant grief, the light of reviving love on his countenance, heal it at once, however deep? Take any of those wicked people in Dante's hell, and ask wherein is justice served by their punishment. Mind, if, I'm, if I am not saying, mind, I am not saying it is not right to punish them. I am saying that justice is not, never can be, satisfied by suffering. Nay, cannot have any satisfaction in or from suffering. 
Human resentment, human revenge, human hate may. Such justice as Dante's keeps wickedness alive in its most terrible forms. The life of God goes forth to inform or at least give a home to victorious evil. Is he not defeated every time that one of these souls, these lost souls defies him? All hell cannot make Vanni Fucci say I was wrong. God is triumphantly defeated, I say, throughout the, the hell of his vengeance. Although against evil, it is but the vain and wasted cruelty of a tyrant. There is no destruction of evil thereby, but an enhancing of its horrible power in the midst of the most agonizing and disgusting tortures a divine imagination can invent. If sin must be kept alive, then hell must be kept alive. But while I regard the smallest sin as infinitely loathsome, I do not believe that any being, never good enough to see the essential ugliness of sin, could sin so as to deserve such punishment. I am not now, however, dealing with the question of the duration of punishment, but with the, the idea of punishment itself, and would only say in passing that the notion that a creature born imperfect, nay, born with impulses to evil, not of his own generating, and which he could not help having, a creature to whom the true face of God was never presented, and by whom it never could have been seen, should be thus condemned, is as loathsome a lie against God as could find place in heart too undeveloped to understand what justice is and too low to look up into the face of Jesus. It never in truth found, uh, found place in any heart, though in many a pettifogging brain. There is but one thing lower than deliberately to believe such a lie, and that is to worship the God of whom it is believed. The one deepest, highest, truest, fittest, most wholesome suffering must be generated in the wicked by a vision, a true sight, or more or less adequate, of the hideousness of their lives, of the horror of the wrongs they have done. Physical suffering may be a factor in rousing this mental pain, but I would, but I would I had never been born, must be the cry of Judas, not because of the hellfire around him, but because he loathes the man that betrayed his friend, the world's friend. When a man loathes himself, he has begun to be saved. Punishment tends to this result, not for its own sake, not as a make-up for sin, not for divine revenge, horrible word, not for any satisfaction to justice can punishment exist. Punishment is for the sake of it, amendment and atonement. God is bound by his love to punish sin in order to deliver his creature. He is bound by his justice to destroy sin in his creation. Love is justice, is the fulfilling of the law, for God as well as for his children. This is the reason of punishment. This is why justice requires that the wicked shall not go unpunished, that they, through the eye-opening power of pain, may come to see and do justice, may be brought to desire and make all possible amends, and so become just. Such punishment concerns justice in the deepest degree, for justice, that is God, is bound in himself to see justice done by his children, not in the mere outward act, but in their very being. He is bound in himself to make up for the wrong done by his children, and he can do nothing to make up for wrong done but by bringing about the repentance of the wrongdoer. When the man says, I did wrong, I hate myself and my deed, I cannot endure to think of, that, that I did it, then I say, his atonement is begun. Without that, all that the Lord did would be lost. He would have made no atonement. Repentance, restitution, confession, prayer for forgiveness, righteous dealing thereafter is the sole possible, the only true makeup for sin. For nothing less than this did Christ die. When a man acknowledges the right he denied before, when he says to the wrong, I abjure, I loathe you, 
I see now what you are. I could not see it before, because I would not. God forgive me, make me clean, or let me die. Then justice, that is God, has conquered, and not till then. I think it should stop there. Yep. It's <clears throat> a pretty powerful argument, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably my um the part of the sermon that I enjoyed the most. This section where he talks about how punishment is more of a means to the end that is like righteousness as opposed to an end in itself to to compensate or um, to compensate for sin it's more of a yeah like I said a means to an ends rather than an end in itself He does actually say that in that part that we were reading before, that it, that it is a means to an end. Um, but here he demonstrates it in his argument. Yeah, he also touches on the idea of evil as a sort of um, lack or void. Um, if God, you know, and, and a lot of times in the philosopher's mind, God is being with a capital B, right? then evil is nothingness. And um, you have a bit of that here, not explicit, but here I'll just show you what I'm thinking of. Um, uh, for evil in the abstract, nothing can be done. It is eternally evil. But I may be saved from it by, loathe, by learning to loathe it, to hate it, to shrink from it with an eternal avoidance. So, evil done is is done. It is it's a thing that has, you know, really happened. It's objective, but yeah. it's it's able to be overcome in a sense by no longer doing it. It's like um, I think it's Saint Paul that says, um, you know, go. And, you know, stop sinning. <laughs> he has the audacity in our minds. It seems maybe maybe not for all um, Christians, depending on your theological background. But to, to me, it sounds pretty, you know, audacious to say to a church, hey, guys, stop sinning. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but he says it, and, and it's it should be taken seriously, right? It's not like, you know, Anyone can can stop sinning entirely. Um, that would be like that is the bar to stop sinning entirely. But um, you know we have to give grace to others when they fail, just like we give grace to ourselves. Hopefully, um, 
because God forgave us. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that that lack, right? It's a lack of goodness. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's not a. It's not an actual thing. It's it's you're not doing the good. Like it's like sometimes it seems very concrete that people are doing evil things, but it, I would say it's always a twisting of a good thing or almost I don't know, maybe you could find an example where that's not true but the twisting of a good thing it's it's an emptying of something good and i'm getting i'm getting hints of that in, in this as well yeah you were saying about paul there um he says you know stop sinning but he also says that which i would do not do i do and that which i would do i don't do right yeah exactly and and um, I think when he says stop sinning, it's kind of like Peterson's clean up your room, you know, start somewhere <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. But um, um, I find it interesting, just like ahead of what you read there, that he says, um, the unjust word is an eternally evil thing. Nothing but God in my heart can cleanse me from the evil that uttered it. You know, it's just, it lives on, right? It's like the watch that was stolen. It, the act that, you know, the thing that happened, the, the wrong that was done, it just lives on and nothing can make it better. No amount of punishment can, can, can make it better. Yeah. And I like I like I like what he says at the uh, on the other end of that is the only vengeance worth having on sin is to make the sinner himself its executioner. Yeah, that's a that's one to write down. It's really good. Mm-hmm. I'm glad he, I'm glad he mentioned Dante as well because when when he was giving that. Um, he, um, like Chuck was saying, he was doing a bit of straw manning with the the um, interlocutor, the other the other voice, who was saying, <laughs> insisting that that God needed to punish sin. I was I was getting little hints of, um, you know, the resentment that I that I see in Dante, where Dante, it's almost like there's a like a little bit of malice there, yeah, in the but the punishing of all those characters and. In hell. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting that that <clears throat> people would would actually build a theology on a poet's con- reconstruction of hell. You know, I, I've heard many people refer to Dante's hell as as if it was the inspired word of God, and and I just shake my head because this is a man who who wrote a poem, and and he he might have had a completely different perspective. He might be trying to show you the folly of, of the idea, you know, like there's, there's so many ways to look at art, right? Um, it's in the eye of the beholder and to compare um, what we think hell is with the idea that has been constructed by a poet. That is like the height of, of foolishness to me. Well, just to jump in there, um, 
I think he might be strawmanning what Dante was trying to do to some degree. Because the way I see it, he was... He wasn't trying to describe what hell is actually like. But more so, he was using it um, in a more symbolic kind of way. Because if you look at the different punishments that take place, it's more so that the, um, the sinner themselves is bringing on, the, bringing on their own suffering, in a sense. Like, there's one, one of the examples that he describes is the hypocrites and the punishment of the hypocrites is to walk around wearing this heavy cloak in circles and I think backwards or something like that and on the outside of the cloak it's like shining and gold and so it's trying to symbolize the hypocrite that puts on this outside appearance that looks good but on the inside it's a heavy cloak that's filled with darkness and that weighs them down so it's more so showing how being a hypocrite itself isn't necessarily a punishment of God but brought on by the sin itself. Mm. So I think Dante wasn't kind of... I think you have to look a little bit deeper than perhaps McDonald does in this section. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, when I first read it, I did come to it with a few... Um, assumptions about what what it was supposed to be about, and that did dampen the experience for me. Um, but yeah, yeah. So to come to it with the thought that it's just a um, malicious, maybe political statement, almost because there is a bit of that, of course. There are some politicians in there that we don't really recognize usually as as um, contemporary readers but yeah it, it does it does take away from the experience so i would say as much as we can we should try to leave our leave our uh, assumptions at the door when we read dante mm -hmm. oh actually i could say something regarding that um in dante the the uh Punishments are appropriate to the crimes. In a sense, the idea is that they brought it on themselves in a very real way. And um, I was going to try pitch an idea, which is basically that not all suffering, I don't know what McDonald will think of this. I can't remember if he says anything in here. Not all suffering is actually punishment exactly. You can, 
like in the C.S. Lewis sense, also Kierkegaard and also a bunch of other people, but you can bring it on yourself. You can create your own hell around you. You can, um, in, in Kierkegaard, it's, the category is called the, the demonic, and it's basically you lock yourself up inside yourself with, mm-hmm. with a certain idea of who you are, and you hang on to that with, um, for dear life, basically. Yeah. I think that's, I think that that is what, what George McDonald, I think he would agree with that. Um, but that's further down the road in here. Yeah. The, the, the C.S. Lewis's, um, image is, is that hell is locked from the inside. Mm-hmm. And Kierkegaard's similar is that he, he calls it a inwardness lock the image is almost exactly right yeah so do we maybe want to stop here because yeah i think we could yeah. um maybe we could uh get back to it at uh, because we kind of discussed that um, piece. Um, like we 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 went through the Dante portion of it. Maybe we could start right after that, and um, where he says, "I am not now, however, dealing with the question of the duration of in, of punishment, but with the idea of punishment itself." He seems to make a a jump into another topic there, so. Do you yep. want to start there next time? Okay. Perfect. Where is that? Um, that is after the piece about Dante. So um, he says, just such justice as Dante's keeps wickedness alive in its most terrible forms. And then further down, if sin must be kept alive, then hell must be kept alive. But while I regard the smallest sin as infinitely loathsome, I do not believe that any being never good enough to see the essential ugliness of sin could sin so as to deserve such punishment. So right about there, we could start again. Did you find it, Chuck? No. Is it in the middle of a paragraph? Um, it might be in your version. <laughs> it's right in the middle of a paragraph for me. Is it? Yeah. So we started. Yeah, I found it. You you found it. Okay, Mm. good. Okay, so we we can start there next next time.